I'd like to introduce our speaker this morning. I'm grateful that at the bridge we have uh, several young men that can fill in for me and uh, speak on Sunday morning. And today, Ryan Koppel is going to be speaking. And Ryan is a former navigator. Many of you know Ryan. Uh, he's here just about every Sunday. And uh, Ryan's wife is uh, on staff with Navigators. Ryan is currently uh, pursuing um, seminary coursework uh, through Liberty University and is uh, continuing his training for ministry. Ryan, we're glad you're going to speak this morning. Come and share. Thank you, Jerry, so for that introduction. Uh, thank you all for letting me uh, open God's Word to you today, and thank you, worship team, for preparing our hearts uh, to worship. Of course. <laughs> uh, I would just like to share with you today some of the things that I've been learning through um, my coursework, like Jerry said, at the Liberty University. I've been taking many great classes that have been helping prepare me. And one of those classes, which I'd like to share with you some of the uh, knowledge and uh, skills and tools that I've learned is through my Hebrew class. Um, but before we do that, let me say a quick prayer. Father God, you are perfect and good and as we've come to you and worshipped you, you've made yourself known. You've presented yourself, and you are here in spirit. God, we pray that you would open our hearts to receive this message this morning. We, I pray, God, that you would help my words be your words, and that any false words that I may speak would just fall to the floor. And God, I pray for your protection over our hearts from the evil one. I ask this all in the strong name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So yeah, as I said, I took a class um, to learn about the Hebrew language. The Hebrew language was um, the majority of the Old Testament was the language that that book was written in, those books, rather. Um, Hebrew is a different language than our English language. The characters are different, and even the way that you read the the script is different. You read from right to left rather than like we read from left to right. Um, one of the major projects for this class was to study the word create. Um, this is a very powerful word in the Hebrew language. Um, if you think about the Hebrew Bible, the very first five words are in the beginning God created. This created, this verb establishes the whole basis for the Hebrew thought, for the Jewish thought, for their theology, as it were. And this word, I wanted to show it to you. We can take a look at this slide. It's the word bara. Say it with me, bara. You don't have to memorize this. There's not going to be a test at the end. <laughs> but I think the question is, uh, how is understanding this word bara going to help me today? And hopefully at the end of my message, you will have an answer to that. Um, but bara, as I studied and as I learned, um, it looks like in the Hebrew, it looks like an X. And then if you take your finger and hold, hold up your right hand and hook your finger, it looks like that. That's the letter R. And then if you hold up your finger again and put a base on the bottom, that's the letter B. So it would be A-R-B. Right backwards to us would be bara. Um, that means create. Um, there are s uh, synonyms to this word, um, yatsar and asha. Those we're not going to talk about, but they're kind of similar. Um, as bara is create, those words mean to form or to make. But this word is very special. It's used only 54 times in the Old Testament, uh, predominantly in Genesis, 
as you can assume with a creation story, uh, in Psalms, as the writers were reflecting on their createdness, and in Isaiah also. But as I said, its synonyms are uh, Yatsar and and Asa. Those are um, more basic terms that just mean like to form. Uh, So Yatsar is to, to form or to fashion from something that's already been created, a plan, uh, a shape that you create something or form something from. And asa is just the making, the producing, the manufacturing of it. Whereas bara, create is a much different word. It's more powerful. It has an artistic quality to it. It's like uh, a creating or fashioning or shaping something for the very first time in an artistic manner, but yet with a very specific purpose. Um, Bara is used uh, as just the word to create, or it could mean created. Um, The Hebrews used it as the word to say their creator, referring to who made them, who created them um, in his image. Um, Bara is, the as we looked at in Genesis already, Bara is the very first action it's the primary purpose of God. It indicates uh, this artistic yet purposeful creation in the creation upon which the plans uh, of those other two verbs, yetsar and uh, asa, are dependent upon. Without this immediate creation, without this word, um, there would be no other forming. There would be no other making. This, is, this word is, is so rich. Um, I want to have you turn to Isaiah 43. If you open your Bible right to the middle and then turn a little bit to the right, that will get you to the book Isaiah. Isaiah 43, um, he uses these three verbs, and this will help us um, to see sort of the intricacies, the differences of these words. Um, Isaiah 43, verse 7, says, Everyone who is called by my name whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. See, the writer Isaiah here is using these three verbs uh, in, in a same similar context, but they're used in a different manner. They're not all used just to, to kind of clump it all together and say, hey, you're, you weren't there, now you're there, you've been created. No, he's using these three verbs, create, form, and make, um, with the verb create to be, First, showing that that has the primary importance of God's creative work. So as we, as we can see, this word has a, a huge significance to, to the Hebrew thought, uh, to who God is as the creator. Uh, some very other interesting things that, that I learned is that create is only used with a divine subject or divine agency. Now, what does that mean? That means that this verb is only used when God is the one doing the creating. Humans, um, angels, other created things never are associated as the actors upon which bara or create is used. Um, And the the words that um, could be used to, to associate this word with God are Elohim or Yahweh, God's personal name, or just God, Adonai, Lord. Um, and so, so having this divine agency or God always doing the creating uh, attached to this word tells us that this is very important to, to the Hebrews. 
Another thing, interesting thing that I, I looked at uh, in my studies was uh, the idea of creation ex nihilo. Uh, what that really means is creation out of nothing. Is this term, does this word um, imply to us, or can we assume that the world is created out of nothing just based upon this word? Uh, and as I studied and as I read, I don't believe that we can base that upon this word. I think to take one word and to associate a whole theology or doctrine upon one word, one word is unbiblical. We need to look at the context. But really, if you take this word and look at it, it means creating something where it had not been existed before. So in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth when there was no heavens and earth. Um, so in a sense, this word allows for the application or allows for the implication of creation out of nothing, whereas the other, other verbs that could have been used, like yatsar or asar, would have um, not allowed for this, this creation out of nothing, a very important doctrine that God created everything that we see out of nothing. Um, and now I realize that uh, in order to really understand something, a visual is always helpful. Um, but unfortunately, I'm not God, and I can't create something for you. So you can't see an, uh, uh, a visual for this. But I, th- I encourage you, to, to, as you leave this morning, uh, to look and to view God's creation, view it as his primary purpose, as his creation. Uh, and so that, that's bara, that's create. Um, and now I just want to take a look at a, a time that this uh, verb is used, um, in, in a personal, specific way. And I think that will help us to, to gain more understanding about uh, what it means and how we can apply it to our lives. And so that is uh, Psalm 51. If you would like to turn with me there. And now what I'd like to do is just, uh, I'm just going to read it. Um, and then we'll go through it, uh, make some observations, and, and talk about what this really means. And as we look at uh, the word create, we see it in this context. It will help us unfold more of what it means to us. So here's Psalm 51. To the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Have mercy on me, O God. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgression. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me against you. You only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. 
Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings, and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. So this is the 51st Psalm. Obviously, as we read, it is a Psalm of David. Um, and it is a collection of works known as, as the penitential Psalms. Penitential really means just bowing before God uh, in humility and confession. And as we see, we must understand the context, like in understanding the context of the word create, we must understand this psalm also. We have a note that this psalm was written after uh, David had gone into Bathsheba. And now I know many of us know the story, so I'll just recap it really quick. All the other troops of Israel were out fighting wars for David. He was in his palace, in his and high up on the, the top of the roof and, and looking out into the city, he sees Bathsheba, a, a woman who was not his wife, rather was another man's wife, and he desired her. He took her to himself, and, um, and, and, he, and he raped her. Um, after he had committed these sins, he knew that he had done wrong, and so he tried to, to cover it up. Um, he knew what he had done wrong, because Bathsheba had become pregnant. In or, so in order to try to hide it or to, to mask that he had done this evil, he called Bathsheba's husband home from the war and, and was trying to get uh, her husband to, to sleep with his wife. And so that would cover up um, the act that he had done. Uh, when, when that didn't happen, when, when um, Uzziah was, was faithful to, to King David, um, and, and David couldn't get that to work. He sent Isaiah back and, and sent him to the front of the troops and had him killed. And so, so David committed some very significant, very serious uh, sins, uh, things that we would think of, you know, good church people, Christian people, they don't do these things. This is King David. This is the man who was supposed to be leading Israel. Um, and, and here we have his, his personal plea, his genuine heartfelt uh, confession after Nathan had sort of figured out what had been going on and, and brought this before David and he finally realized, took the full weight uh, of what he had done uh, to his heart and took it to his Lord. Um, yeah, if, the, if you'd like to look more into the, the context of the story, it's found in Second Samuel 11 and 12. Um, but what we have written there is, is part of David's uh, confession, part of the psalm, as you will. He just said, have mercy, I am a sinner. Uh, so, so in that context, the, the history is just written. Um, but here we have what I believe to be a more full, complete, uh, a genuine response um, from, from this man, from David. Um, and as, we, as it opens, uh, David's, David's been running, David's been trying to cover things up. 
and he gets caught. There's no more hiding, no more running. He has one last straw to plea and to come and come before God and, and ask for mercy, to surrender and say, God, just have mercy. So that is, that's his first words in verse one, have mercy on me, O God. And he bases this request according to God's steadfast love. The Hebrews understood this as the hased, the unfailing, unconditional, always permanent love of God. So this character of God frees David to ask for mercy when he can ask for nothing else, when he can do nothing else, when he can run no longer. Um, and, and as you see in verses 1 and 2 here, at the end of verse 1, it says, Blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. We begin this uh, look into these words transgression, iniquity, and sin. It seems like David is using these maybe interchangeably, um, but they'll kind of maybe mean the same thing. Well, what does transgression mean? Transgression is like a rebellion. It's a, against an authority that is over you, and it's rebelling against that, going against it. Iniquity is a similar term, but it m- means more of just doing wrong, committing something that's wrong. And sin, um, we all have many terms that we might think of or come to our mind when we think of sin. Uh, sin commonly is referred to as missing the mark. or I like to think of it in terms of different analogies. And I know this analogy is not very polite, um, but I'm going to share it anyway because I think it shows... Uh, the deception of sin. Uh, one person has said that sin is like excrement covered in whipped cream. Now, now th- think about that. That is kind of what sin is like. It's, it looks soft and sweet and good on the outside, but on the inside, it's empty nothingness and filth and dirty. Another, another analogy that's helpful for me to understand sin and what it really is as is a writer, he explains sin is like having a, a Persian rug, a very beautiful, expensive Persian rug, and then taking a jar of ink and blotting it on that rug. Now, what we tend to look at is, is the ink stain and saying, oh, that ink stain is so horrible. But what sin really is, is it's devaluing the rug. It, sin is, is the, if sin is the ink and, and the glory of God is the rug. We are taking our sins and staining the glory of God. We are devaluing our creator. And so, so these three words start David to think about the things that he's been doing. But as you notice, David doesn't confess uh, specific sins. He doesn't say, you know, I did this with Bathsheba. Um, I, I killed a man. He doesn't confess any of those things. He gets to the deeper issues in his heart, to the real uh, problem, which is his sin, his basic nature. And we see this in verse 3. For I know my transgression, and my sin is ever before me. David again uses these terms, transgressions and sins, and this sort of covers the whole uh, range, the whole spectrum of all the things that he could do wrong. And he, he sees them, and he knows them. He doesn't just acknowledge them. He doesn't just admit them. He knows them. It's like they can't get them off of his mind. Have you ever been like that? Have you ever felt that where you've done something wrong, you feel so guilty, and your sin is just weighing you down? 
well, like David, there's no more, no more hiding. There's no more running. We just must confess and plea for God's mercy. But part of that, must we must come to God and we must acknowledge our sin. We must say we, we know it. We identify with our sin problem. The next verse, verse 4, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. David, how can you say that? You've done so many things personally against these people and offended them. How can you say you've done only sins against you, uh, against God? Um, well, David viewed his, he was viewing his real problem was his heart. He was viewing the real problem of his sin was personally offending the glory of God. Uh, it's not to say that he didn't realize that he sinned and made errors against these people. He was just confessing um, before God. He had viewed the ultimate um, purpose or the plan for which he was created and how he had marred that. Um, And he goes on, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgments. David's realizing that, uh, that God had created man and he was looking for a man that was pure and clean and he found no man he found no one who was clean, no one who was righteous. God was justified in saying that all have sinned. God was right to judge David's sin. He goes on to continue uh, looking more into the depth of his heart and realizing where his problem lied originated. He says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Now, he's not blaming his mother. He's not saying, you know, it's her, it's her fault, I'm a sinner. Um, he's identifying with his own sin nature, how it began with his birth, how he was born into this problem of his sin nature. And again, he uses these words, iniquity and sin to, to stir up, to muster up, to express to, to God his own heart about his problem, which was his, was, his, was his sin in his heart. He continues, Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being. Now, he doesn't say you delight in the things that I do or the way that I lead my people or he doesn't say you delight in me standing up and and slaying the giant David. He says you delight in truth in the inward being. He's really connecting to his heart here. And I think he has a correct view because he's understanding what God is looking at. 1 Samuel 16, 7, one of my uh, favorite passages of all time. This is when David was being chosen to, to be king. David had some other brothers who... Um, We're all maybe good candidates in our eyes, um, but in God's eyes, David was the best candidate. And this is what it says. It says, people look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Now, as we read uh, this psalm, we think, okay, well, David's heart, um, he's confessing that it's full of all these wickedness, all this sin. But for whatever reason, God's divine wisdom, he selected David because he looked on his heart, and David is referred to as the man after God's own heart. 
God looked at David and said, I want this man to be king because I know that he will lead my people in his heart. He has, uh, he has been made in such a way, I've created him in such a way that he will be able to lead my people. Uh, so this uh, first six verses show us uh, that the, the first step in, in maybe really understanding what, it, what this word create means is the, the idea of confession, uh, coming before God, acknowledging not just our sins and the way that they are expressed, but our inward nature of sin. We must confess to God not just the things that we do, but our evil nature. David begins this next section, which is talking about uh, how he needs to be cleansed um, he says, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Hyssop was uh, a branch that the, they used in a, the Hebrew, in the Jewish uh, rituals to, to sprinkle water on a person to, make, to clean them. And now when I read this, it says, purge me with, with hyssop. And purge does not sound like a fun thing problem with our sin is sometimes it needs to be cleaned out and sometimes that really hurts. In order to be clean, if we desire to be clean, uh, we must endure through this purging, through this cleansing process. He continues on and he's pleading with God. In fact, he's demanding, with, he's demanding of God to, to wash him and he will be whiter than snow. Now when we think about snow, I often just think about, okay, I look at the field and it's, there's snow on it, but maybe there's kind of some flakes of, of uh, twigs or branches, and it's really not white. It's kind of white with some black flecks and dirt. What David is really expressing here is he will be whiter than snow, how God has created snow to be white, completely pure. He's saying, wash me and cleanse me to be completely pure, he knows that once he is pure, once he is cleansed, um, he can be able to rejoice and to hear gladness and joy. How many times have we been struggling with sin and dealing with uh, things that are weighing us down and, and our nature as being uh, sinners and we feel like we can't hear joy, we can't hear uh, maybe you feel like God's not even talking to us. Maybe we are trying to read our Bibles and it sounds like God is silent. Our problem might be that we need to confess and to be cleansed and to be able to hear again joy and gladness. As, as David continues on and, and as he's trying to express to God his need for cleansing, he uses more uh, demanding language. He says, hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Uh, now, when, when Adam and Eve sinned in, in the garden, they tried to hide themselves. They tried to cover themselves, and that didn't work. Um, God, God knew, because God was looking at the heart. Um, what David is requesting here is that God turn away from his sins. Uh, in, in, in the Hebrew language, in the, in the Hebrew culture, uh, God had expressed that if someone was, sin, was living in sin, he would hide his face from that person or turn his face from them. What David is requesting here, he's saying, God, just 
don't look at my sin. You please still look at me. Just don't look at my sin. Blot it out. Make it as if it were nothing. And then we get to the word that we've been talking about. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. David intensifies his request. He identifies with the creative, powerful, purposeful nature of God. He amps up his, his claim and, and asks God to create in him a new heart, a clean heart, a pure heart. And as we looked at this word create before, we would remember that it's um, creating artistically with a purpose. Um, if we're thinking about it, David already had a heart in his body. He was breathing, he was a living being. So we can't obviously be talking about a physical heart. He, it's not like he has a, a heart problem. What he's talking about is his spiritual heart, his condition. He's asking God to remake or to make him new again in his heart, a heart that is clean, a heart that had been stained with sin and was evil, and he was asking God to create or to transform or to replace that heart with a clean heart, with a pure heart. A few years ago, um, I'm, I'm a huge sports fan, a, a huge uh, huge sports fan. And a few years ago, I was hearing of this story about a defensive back for the Chicago Bears. And so I know we might all be thinking, okay, the Chicago Bears this is just whatever. I may not really care. But the defensive back for the Chicago Bears is a human, and he deals with human problems. His problem was that his daughter, a three-month-old daughter, her heart had was having problems. Her heart was not beating correctly. Um, what had happened was her heart was too big for um, for the heart cavity. Uh, if you if you've seen the movie John Q, this is a similar story. Um, but what Charles Tillman, this defensive back for the Chicago Bears, was dealing with was his his daughter needing a new heart. His daughter needing a replacement heart so that she could live. And here's what, here's what Charles Tillman was thinking. I just want us to, to look at this and to read this and think about what it means. Charles Tillman asks, how can I ask God for a new heart for my daughter? If she gets a new heart, then that means that someone else's child has to die. You see, Charles Tillman understood the power. He understood the weight of this power of creation. One on that, um, a little boy named Armando, he, he did not survive, but his heart did. And Armando's heart was put into Tiana, Charles Tillman's daughter's heart, and she was able to live. She is now a five-year-old happy girl. But look what he said. If, if she gets a new heart, then that means someone else's child has to die. If you're sitting here today and you, you're dwelling on that, I hope you're thinking about our Lord Jesus and the sacrifice that God made. 
in order to create a new heart in his people, God had to send his son to die on a cross. Now what David is saying here, he's not, he doesn't have that understanding of what's already happened. He's just asking, God created me this new heart. I don't even know what it means, but I know that I need a pure heart. I know that's my problem. Friends, brothers and sisters in Christ, if you have accepted Jesus into your heart, I know that's a term that we just use, but if that's true of you, then you have what David was asking for. This man who committed these horrendous sins, you have that. You have this new heart in you. You have been regenerated. You have been made new. You have been a new creation. You have been crucified with Christ and you no longer live, but Christ lives in you. But it doesn't just stop at regeneration. It doesn't just stop at verse 10. Okay, God created me a new heart. That's, that's great, yay. No, David goes on further. He understands the implications of a, a pure heart in him, of this new heart that would be created for him at such a high cost. He goes on and he asks, Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Now, what he's not asking here, what he is not asking here, let me clarify again, what he's not asking here is not to lose his salvation. This wasn't uh, a case where David had been saved uh, and then was saying, okay, God, I don't want to lose your salvation. David uh, was just asking to be recreated, to be uh, born again, as Jesus would refer to. He was asking that God's presence would not be taken away from him. You see, David was the king of Israel. David was the anointed one of Israel. David was anointed with the Holy Spirit. And unlike Saul, who had the Spirit taken from him for his disobedience, David was requesting, God, please don't take your presence from me. Please don't take your blessing from me. Truly, the blessing of God is the presence of God. And so, yes, it doesn't, doesn't just end at being regenerated. It doesn't just end at being recreated, remade. It goes on. It has a commitment. It says, Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. If my heart has been remade, if my heart is clean and pure, then I will no longer focus on these sins. I will no longer be deafened by the nature of my own heart. I will no longer have the face of God turning away from me, but I will be restored. He also, David also expresses another commitment, which I believe we can identify with in our age. In verse 13, David says, Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Now, Jesus has asked us to go and to make disciples of all nations as the Great Commission. And this is kind of like how David is expressing his commitment after he's been remade, after he's been created. He's saying, I will teach transgressors your ways. He's not just saying, oh, I will teach those people who aren't Israelites, who aren't um, 
Jewish who don't have the blessing of God, I'm not just going to teach the Gentiles, or he's not just saying, I'm just going to teach the the Israelites, the good people. He's including everyone. He's saying transgressors. He's identifying with them in their humanness, in their sin nature. And friends, as we think about God's command to us as born-again Christians to make disciples, to teach sinners to follow in the ways of God, we must not include or exclude one specific group. God asks us to make disciples of all nations, all peoples, people inside of the church, people outside of the church, people of all different races and colors. He continues on with his commitment. Verse 14, Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation. David's not turning back here and and, um, just remembering his specific case where he murdered Uzziah. He's just acknowledging that he is still a sinner. He has guilt in his heart. And, And if he's been delivered from this, he's saying that he's going to commit to praising God He's saying, my mouth, my tongue will sing aloud to your praise. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. See, worshiping God is not just about singing the right songs or the right hymns or saying the right words. It's about having a remade heart and committing to expressing those things. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. Verse 16, you will not be pleased with burnt offering. David, again, is not making, is making another commitment. He's saying, I'm not just going to offer these, um, I'm not just going to obey your commands and offer these um, gifts to you any longer, just out of obedience. Saying, you don't delight in that, God. He's committing to God his heart. Verse 17, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. David's understanding that it's not just the offerings that he needs to make. He needs to offer his very self to God. Now this word uh, contrite uh, is is kind of a word that we don't use any longer. Um, But I think the gravity of it is also significant. Contrite Uh, What David is trying to get here is he's saying, I have sorrow and I'm um, filled with maybe shame and a little bit of of guilt for these things, Um, but I understand that you have paid the price. I understand that you have cleansed me of those things and you have created me a new heart and I'm committing to following you. Contrite means I am, yes, I am guilty, but I'm committed to doing it the right way. We often call this uh, repentance. And so uh, God is not delighting in these sacrifices, uh, or David would commit to doing them. He's committing himself to offering himself to God through his heart. And then David closes um, viewing how his own heart would affect the rest of his community. He's saying, do good to Zion in your good pleasure and build up the walls of Jerusalem. See, David wasn't just focused on committing himself to the Lord. He was committed on, he was focused on committing himself to the Lord so that he could impact his community. He said, then you will delight in right sacrifices and in burnt offerings and whole offerings and bulls will be offered on your altar. 
is kind of uh, maybe contradictory to what verse 16 says. Somebody could look at these verses and take them out of context and say, well, okay, you're saying God does not delight in sacrifices, and now you're saying God does delight in sacrifices. People often take the Bible out of context and make it say things that it doesn't say. What David is saying here is that you don't delight in sacrifices that are just committed to doing these sacrifices. You don't delight in serving, in us serving you if it's just to serve you. You delight in our hearts overflowing into service. Because God looks at our hearts and he sees what is in our hearts. So as we take, as we take this whole uh, psalm, we see that David is talking about confessing, he's talking about being cleansed, and he's talking about committing himself to God. But the central focus, the, the heart of what he is pleading with God is for mercy, is for the nature of God who is unfailing in love, who is all-powerful to create just like he did in the beginning when he created the heavens and earth, he is asking, he is pleading with God to create in him a new heart, a pure heart. And friends, through the death of Jesus, we have that reality if we are trusting in his salvation. If you're sitting here today and you're not sure, if you are unsure about where you stand with God, if you have this new created heart, if you have this uh, regenerated heart. I pray that as we continue in your time, in our time of communion, God would open your heart. He would speak to you through these words and that you will weigh uh, this prayer request, this thought that Charles Tillman shares with us. If I get a new heart, then that means someone else, someone else's child has to die. That child did die. His name is Jesus and he has died for you and me. That is our hope. That is our salvation. And I have one last uh, thought to share, one last quote to share with you, if we have that up on this slide. How many people do you know believe they are going to heaven because they're not trusting so much in Christ as they are the sincerity of the decision they made a long time ago? You see, what, what this person was trying to say is that trusting in the death of Christ, having faith in Christ, is our salvation, is this new life that we've been created into. We must not simply just trust that I was sincere or that I had faith. We must have faith in the present sense. We must continue on. A group of, of disciples were asking uh, their their mentor, their leader, uh, various questions, and and he was always you know right on the ball and and thinking you know I have the perfect answer for this, and these disciples were just wowed at all the answers this this uh, wise man was sharing with them, and then they were they were talking and, and like thinking okay how is how can we stump this guy how can we get him to to not have a, a good answer for us, and they thought I have the perfect question, uh, and they asked. Uh, how do, how do I know that I will continue walking with, with God 30 years from now? How can I be sure of that? And this, this leader, uh, pausing for a second, um, thought and then immediately asked, walk with Jesus today. Walk with Jesus today. 
If you're walking with Jesus today, if you have faith in Jesus today, if you are trusting in Christ for your salvation today, you will walk with Jesus 30 years from now. If you are merely trusting that a long time ago uh, you maybe prayed and, and you were sincere in your prayer and you were trusting in that one time that you prayed, um, it will be very difficult for you, I believe, to really trust, to really have that assurance that, that you have eternal life, that you have been recreated. See, to be recreated, to be remade, to understand this idea of, of Barat, to create anew, we must understand that it costs a tremendous price and to trust in the payment of Jesus for our sins to give us a new heart. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, you have committed your life for the Father's purpose, the purpose of his glory through his people. And Lord, you knew that the only way to do that was to create in your people a new heart. And Lord, through your sovereign wisdom and power, you knew the price and the penalty and the cost of that creation. You knew the wickedness of our heart. You knew the problem of our sin because you were not just looking at the outward manifestations of it. You were looking in the inward being. You were looking in our hearts. Jesus, praise you for what you've done. I pray that as we walk forward today, as we continue on, we would realize ourselves as having the opportunity to be created by artistic, purposeful, powerful, created God through the death of his son and giving us a new heart. Lord, I pray for people here who do not understand. I pray that you would open their hearts to understand. And Lord, I pray for those who who have life, who have a new heart. God, I pray that you help us all to commit to making disciples, to making fully devoted followers of you, to impact the community through this new heart that you have given us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.